<laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. My name is Sarah Jolina Wolcott, and I am your hostess on this sacred learning journey of unraveling, unveiling, and becoming more fully alive at the end of the world as we know it. In this podcast, we offer up to you, dear listener, three forms of episodes to support your journey of remembering and re-enchanting. First, conversations with amazing people. Second, storytelling. And third, myth-casting. In this episode, we're going to bring you a conversation between myself another amazing, fascinating leader in the areas of remembering and re-enchanting. Hello, and welcome to the Remembering and Re-enchanting podcast. I am so delighted to be joined today by Dr. Carol Cusack, a professor of religious studies at Sydney University. Her research interest varies from contemporary religious trends, such as the intersections of religion and pop culture, including fandom, to medieval Christianity and European mythology. She has graciously agreed to speak with us today about some of her early research on the rise of Christianity in Northern Europe, especially around sacred trees and the destruction of them, which is very much about the history of the conversion of European pagan peoples, whom we might also refer to as European indigenous peoples, to Christianity. Um, Professor Kusak, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Hmm. I'm wondering if we could actually get started with a, a little bit of the personal dynamic. What got you interested in conversion in this early period of medieval history? That was sort of an accident, really. When I was doing my honours thesis at the University of Sydney, I think I was quite immature at 21, and I didn't have a lot of ideas. My actual family background wasn't academic at all. My father was a plumber, my mother a housewife. And so I was enjoying very much being at university and I wanted to do honours and write a 20,000 word thesis, but I had very little idea about how to do it. And so my supervisor, Eric Sharp, who died in 2000, um, still very much missed by me and by many of us, uh, he had a lot of discarded projects lying around, had a lot of ideas and sometimes didn't finish things. And I said to him, I was a bit flat, I didn't really know what I could research. And he suggested that I might consider researching the way that 19th century English people romanticised the Vikings and how they were perhaps connected to the Vikings. And I discovered very quickly that William Morris, whom I was interested in as a designer and poet, uh, was very interested in that topic precisely and had actually travelled to Iceland and learned Icelandic so that he could translate Icelandic sagas. And so I thought this is excellent. And I did that. And then when I'd finished my honours year, I considered and I thought, look, I would like to do a PhD. I don't know 
if I will be any good at it, but um, I think it would be a great opportunity. And I should point out that I was very fortunate. There was a brief period in the history of Australian universities between 1972 and 1991, when university education was free, entirely free, as it is in lots of parts of Europe nowadays, but you know, it isn't. Um, so this was my life sitting there in the middle 80s when everything is free. And I thought, look, I, I really think I'd like to do a PhD. And so I did exactly the same thing, turned up to his office and said, well, I'd like to do a PhD. I suppose I'd like it to be con somehow connected to the Viking research that I've already done, but I don't really have any ideas. And he tossed me a sort of 50 page typescript and said, this was something I was going to do. I can't even think how many years ago. If it interests you, you probably should take it up. And it was a short document, mostly notes and little sketches and pieces of information about the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons. And I thought, mm, okay. And because I didn't really have an idea of my own, I thought, well, I'll start with that. And I enrolled as a postgrad student in Icelandic old Icelandic classes and Anglo-Saxon classes and started working on it. And as it was, of course, when I finished the PhD, that only turned out to be one chapter out of eight. Uh, the project got mm -hmm. bigger and started kind of in late antiquity and ended with the conversion of Iceland in 1000. So it became much more of a survey. But that's how I ended up um, picking that topic. It was a sort of combination of uh, good guidance on the part of my supervisor and general cluelessness on the part of me. Mm. <laughs> well, I noticed that you've, you've won several awards for your own supervision. Um, so <laughs> he, must have, he must have given you a good model there. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate having, having been through many research processes myself. I appreciate that, that balance. Um, and so when you're, you dealt, you kind of, you, you delved into this topic and you delved into this topic of conversion and looking at this, this moment, this really, I would say very critical moment in European history. Um, and your work has both challenged and integrated some of the previous understandings of conversion. And I think I really like always when we're looking at the past, we want to understand the different, you know, ways in which they're sometimes different than, than, than we are today. Um, and you really strongly point out that at that time people saw themselves as part of a collective. Um, and so purely focusing on individual aspects of conversion and the interior internal dimension of conversion is in, in, inappropriate for that time period. Um, can you say some about like the social context of that time? And, and when we were thinking about conversion then, how is that different than when we're talking about conversion to any faith tradition today? That's a really interesting set of problems to try to unlock. Just as a sort of preview, the point you make about how we try to connect with people in the past and we try to be aware of them as having certain things in common with us but also being very different to us is an enormous kind of site of contention in religious studies in particular, because there are lots of different arguments about why we have religion 
And if we move outside of like faith-based arguments from people who are within religious communities, the general sort of idea is that either everyone's always had religion and it serves all these really important purposes, mostly what um, the cognitive science of religious studies people nowadays call pro-sociality, that religion promotes community identity and cements people together and it creates mutual obligations between people and so they feel that they have a purpose and they have belonging but they also are significantly shall we say restrained in the sense of obligation and commonly held values being a way to normatively keep people from acting out uh, in certain kinds of ways. And so, of course, one of the things that people say nowadays with the modern West is that it is different to the past. Now, it's also different to a lot of other cultures that are still flourishing on our planet in the sense of our very, very rampant individualism, even though actually quite often when you look at a certain subcultural group of people, I don't know, um, punks or rockabilly people or uh, goths or even your average teenage school kids, they all tend to look a bit tribal and they don't look amazingly individualistic, but they normally think of themselves very strongly as choosing individuals and they think of restraints, parental, societal, religious, as being somehow kind of um, there to frustrate their mm-hmm. amazing individuality, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So right, and that, right, and it's a, they're rebelling against constraints, but they're frequently, it looks like they're actually choosing a different set of constraints. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, so when we're looking at people, the people I got interested in, they're usually called um, Germanic people because they spoke Germanic languages uh, and there are different kinds of Germanic languages obviously the Scandinavian languages are North Germanic and uh, so on and so forth and I started and just with- just to, just to clarify for folks who are less familiar with the what what the term means we're really talking about from Iceland and Scandinavia all the way down certainly including Germany and how how far south does that language group okay. tend to go that's a really good point uh, obviously, the Anglo-Saxons over in what is now England. What is now England. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a long period when, in fact, Germanic-speaking people occupied most of the post-Roman Empire, at least in the West. So even though we don't have a lot of traces of them nowadays linguistically, uh, the Visigoths, for example, had a kingdom in Spain on the Iberian Peninsula, Um, The Ostrogoths, uh, Theodoric, the great Ostrogothic king, had a kingdom in northern Italy centred on Mm. Ravenna. Um, So we're looking at... I didn't realise it was that far south. Yeah, it goes all the way, really. And that's where I ended up starting. I started with the Roman Empire because it was the structure, if you like, in which Christianity as a new religion was actually born. Um, you know, the, the Holy Land was under Roman domination uh, during the life of Jesus. 
And of course, when you look at the missionary journeys of Paul, he is protected in some sense by the fact that he is a Roman citizen. He's born in Tarsus, which is modern Turkey nowadays, but he ends his life in Rome and he is beheaded, which was considered to be a dignified mode of death appropriate to a Roman citizen where crucifixion was a humiliating uh, and horrible death for people who didn't have the rights of citizenship. So mm -hmm. that's kind of, I didn't really go very much into the very beginnings of Christianity because I got kind of interested in where things were around about the third edging into the fourth century. Mm -hmm. and that's when Rome is finding it difficult to maintain its, its borders, its boundaries along the Rhine and Danube rivers. It gets split into two halves with one emperor in Constantinople and one in Rome. And this is because um, it's become so huge. It's really difficult, almost impossible to administer the whole thing as a unity. Um, and there are persecutions of Christians happening at the time, but there are also groups of what the Romans and the Greeks referred to as barbarians settling in the empire, sometimes violently invading and breaking through the uh, borders, but sometimes actually being peacefully settled as what we call federati because they served in the Roman army, for example, because the army right. needed foreign recruits by that stage. And at, the, and at this ending point, the empire is loosely Christian. Um, yes. but, but it's not like the local people are not as Christian as I think sometimes when we talk about the empire was Christian, we think the people were Christian. And, and I think that that seems like that's a bit of a, a not quite understanding what we're looking at. You're absolutely right. When you study conversion as a historical or social phenomenon, there's a difference between what we call top-down perspectives and bottom-up perspectives. And top-down perspectives are when governments, monarchs, powerful people decide that they are going to become a Christian and that they will impose it on everybody who is in some sense um, bonded to them through oaths of loyalty or through servile social status. And bottom-up perspectives is when the people themselves want something and become attached to it and become maybe converted to it in their own way. And they let it rise gradually through the mm. ranks society and obviously a top-down conversion is not a conversion in terms of that modern psychological way that you were talking about because a lot of um well say for example christian historians would say that unless there is that internal change of heart then a person isn't really converted and so quite a lot of books talk about christianization which is like there's this rollout of Christian culture, <laughs> churches are built, bishops are appointed, people get baptised, but do they really um, have faith in Christ? Uh, do they even understand what a lot of these things are about? And we know, actually, there's a couple of really cute anecdotes. Um, there's one, for example, from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that concerns a Viking. So this is quite a lot later. But when he turns up in London with a ship full of goods to trade 
um, several priests and bishops used to hang around the docks because they'd find pagans and offer them, you know, instruction in Christianity or baptism. And this Viking met a bishop and the bishop said, well, you know, I want to bring you the word. This is a Christian country. Uh, have you been baptized? And the Viking said, I, and many times. <laughs> and the uh, bishop was a little bit rattled by that. But it was pointed out by various historians that when you got baptized, usually a powerful lord in, in the country would stand as your sponsor, what, like a godfather in, like a godfather. Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. And also that you would get gifts which included at least one new shirt and maybe some other things that were of even more value and my supervisor Eric Sharp pointed out that it was quite possible that the Viking in question also thought that it was a kind of ritual that conferred power that if he got baptized he would be protected or lucky or given success and so this seems to us to be a very different understanding of what we think baptism's for, but it indicates very clearly how across cultures uh, and sometimes through language being translated, um, there were very kind of um, inaccurate or hazy sorts of understandings of these processes that, that spread through people. I mean, what's part of what I find so interesting about this moment in time and your work in particular is, is this the many, many parallels between this moment of the Christianization of Europe um, with all of its like, you know, sometimes inaccurate <laughs> interpretations and, and the colonization and with it, the um, attempted Christianization of indigenous peoples around the world in more modern times. Um, and there's often this as you're telling that story, I, I feel I've heard Indigenous elders tell various stories of their own that are quite similar to that one, you know, many, many centuries later in a very different, and yet, you know, that there's an echo, right, um, of of that moment you're describing that I have heard as well. And I, I'm, I have, I'm just very curious, I'm very curious about this question of like this do we know how they understood religion? Because I know in many Indigenous cultures that I've uh, encounter today, they, you know, there is no localized or indigenous word for the term religion itself, right? And so, in this in this kind of early period in early medieval Europe, was that like did the would the concept of a new religion and having a new set of beliefs like would that have had much meaning in a kind of political context where people were converting for reasons other than personal beliefs? Okay, there's a giant kind of intellectual methodological kind of war zone in religious studies that actually addresses this very issue because you're right. Uh, the idea of Indigenous Europeans being like the Indigenous people that were encountered in the New World when Europeans in the late 15th and 16th centuries sailed to the Americas, the Pacific, and also started penetrating countries like India and China and Japan. Uh, this is an analogy, or not even an analogy, it's deeper than an analogy that is used very often. The first person I think I ever heard say such a thing was James P. Mackey, 
who used to work at the University of Edinburgh. He is long since dead. Um, but he addressed a conference in Celtic studies here at the University of Sydney in 1992. And he said exactly that, that what happened with the rollout of Christianity in the Middle Ages was a literate uh, system of religion from an urbanized, centrally governed, bureaucratic style society, something that was closer to what we'd think of as the culture we live in now. And it was rolled out on people who were called pagans and heathens. Paganus means a country dweller. Heathen literally means someone who lives on the heath. And we should remember that civilized means the person who lives in the city. So the city is the place where all the groovy new ideas come from. And the city rolls these things out over villages and countrysides and hamlets and entirely alien populations who just don't know anything about it at all. Your second point, which is that a lot of Indigenous peoples, different language, language groups, different conceptual universes, don't have a word that seems to line up with the word we use called religion is also true. And that's a bit of a battleground because some people would argue that religion is not really like a thing in itself. It's more like a, a black box, which can have just about anything put into it when you uh, essentially are trying to um, conquer and assimilate a different culture. Um, and so what happens to pagans in the Middle Ages is that mostly Christian church people, mostly men, um, usually don't rate what they um, do in terms of ritual practice as really religion. Um, in Latin, there's a distinction between religio, religion, and superstitio, superstition. And we still use both of those words in English, but they mean a little bit different things now, I guess. But the church idea was you could have like arguments with Jews and with later on with Muslims, because they at least believed in the one true God. And they acknowledged that they were people of the book, you know, the book being the Bible. But with pagans, you, you couldn't do that. There was no common ground. And so what normally happened was that their beliefs and practices were categorized either as superstitions, which was about the mildest thing, or as actually demonic, you know, their gods on a generous perspective for medieval churchmen were either just non-existent and so they were idiots to believe in them, mm -hmm. or they were actually real and they were demons sent to deceive. And in that case, they needed Christianity much more. They needed to be converted, to be brought into the church. And I think we saw a lot of the same kinds of things in the Americas, here in Australia, where I live, um, in New Zealand and in the Pacific. The indigenous peoples, their religions looked too different for the colonists and the missionaries to really understand them. And so it was easier just to push a kind of wholesale um, dismissal and begin with, well, they need to be made 
to become Christians. And that's, that's just how it goes. And if you think about how old this idea is, you know, this idea that you bring religion with colonialism, um, there was a seventh century Frankish king, Dagobert II, and he actually said openly, it's recorded in historical chronicle, conversion should go hand in hand with conquest. And when we go a little bit later into the late 8th century and the early 9th century, you've got Charlemagne who takes that to an absolutely extreme degree. And when he is uh, conquering Saxony, for example, quite often, you know, numbers in the thousands were executed for refusing baptism. Mm. Which is histories of Charlemagne that I don't recall being taught in my history book. I mean, they might have been, but uh, there was it's, it's, when people remember Charlemagne, I don't remember know how much they remember that part of him. Um, that might be a really good uh, kind of avenue into some other aspects of Charlemagne because I think you you beautifully write about before he does these mass killings, he destroys a sacred site and he destroys the axis mundi and he does a very ritual destruction and i'm i wonder if you can kind of like walk us through that because it it just it all it's just it's such a it's such a powerful symbol <laughs> um like charlemagne's very I, I think he it sounds like he really knew what he was doing um in attacking this particular axis mundi the axis mundi is a fantastically important concept here because it illustrates one of the big differences between Christianity in the Middle Ages and paganism, which itself is a very difficult term. I mean, uh, a lot of people would see calling the religion of uh, the Europeans at this point paganism as insulting, but I think it's also very difficult just to refer to it as pre-Christian religion because that suggests that everything is waiting for the coming of Christianity and it's basically not a significant thing on its own. I like your term. I like indigenous religion. So if we think about the indigenous religion of the Saxons in the case of Charlemagne, well, monotheism is a strongly unified theology. There's one God, there's one book. It's usually very easy to say whether something is right or wrong. You may say, well, <laughs> there's a lot of conflict and disagreement within different Christian denominations, and that certainly is true. But in general, it's quite systematic, whereas Indigenous European religions were not systematic. A lot of gods and spirits were localised. And the idea of the Axis Mundi, the centre of the world, it didn't have to be a single Axis Mundi. We know, mm -hmm. for example, that there were sacred trees that were counted as the center of the world by a very large number of different cultures. Um, and there might be multiple trees. So if you read about um, medieval Ireland and the, the conversion of Ireland when St. Patrick first comes, you'll realize that there are five great sacred trees in Ireland and they're all kind of an axis mundi. But this particular situation with the Saxons is interesting. Charlemagne has a strong program when he becomes king of the Franks in 768. Mm -hmm. He's a strongly committed Christian. It doesn't matter that he obviously had a fairly varied sex life and he was 
uh, violent and provoked what we would now probably call genocide. Uh, he, his identity was strongly tied with being a Christian. He started a program to separate out parishes throughout his um, territory. He got a program of Bible copying happening. So in each parish church, a chained Bible was there so people could read. He started what we would consider to be a Christian think tank with a whole lot of monks and, and uh, other clergy with skills and talents from all over the place, Irish, Italian, Anglo-Saxon, people from all sorts of places. But he also had a vision of conquest and expansion, and he wanted to expand into territories that adjoined his own realm, but which remained pagan. And so there's a couple of obvious groups of people, the, the Saxons, who live in what is now Sachsen-Anhalt, south of Denmark, and also the Frisians, who live in what is now um, parts of Germany and parts of the Netherlands, are groups that he sets his sights on because, you know, they're, they're neighbourly, neighbouring, uh, and they are unremittingly pagan, you know. So the um, Ax Mundi that you refer to is a pillar monument called the Ermansul. Uh, now, it's a really interesting thing. When we go back to Tacitus in the first century, he talks about a Germanic god called Ermin, who seems to be like a world uplifting or, or world preserving kind of deity. If you think about Hindu uh, theology, you'll know that the Trimurti, Brahma, is the creator. Vishnu is called the preserver. Mm -hmm. It seems like Ermin is a, is a kind of preserving stability kind of god. Um, when Charlemagne's army set out from Worms, they marched into Saxony in 772, uh, and they took over a fortification which was called Erisburg, where the Ermansul was nearby. And it seems to have been not a living tree, but what was called a pillar monument. Um, Ken Dowden, who's my favourite writer on European pagan religions, he says that you have living trees and you have non-living stones, like standing stones, such as you see in many, many parts of Europe. And in the middle between the two is the tree that has had branches stripped from it and is a kind of carved trunk, maybe in the way that we think of totem poles um, from uh, mm -hmm. contemporary Indigenous mm -hmm. people. And so the Omensal seems to have been a monument like that, it also was obviously part of a shrine because it had gold and silver offerings and things that were there, which he his army looted, of course. Um, and there also was a sacred spring, which seems to have dried up when this violation of the centre of the mm. world mm. happened. Um, and eventually the water begins to flow again. And the chronicles, naturally, the Royal Frankish Annals is the important one here, think that the water flowing again is a sign that actually destroying the Ermansul and taking away the treasures offered to pagan gods is something that the Christian God approves of. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's a really difficult sort of story. Um, 
we have a little description of the Ermensul in a medieval uh, glossary by Rudolf of Fulda, who Fulda was a, near, a German monastery, uh, and he uh, defines the Ermensul as a universal column upholding the heavens. Mm. And there does seem to be a couple of other place names in Germany that have the word Ermen or even Ermensul, though spelled differently. Uh, in existence, which would suggest that my my initial comment that there could be many centers in a world where the religion is diffuse and localized, and people did different things depending on mm -hmm. what lands they lived on and what clans or or tribal groups they thought they belonged to. And so, so I'm imagining Charlemagne coming in and and destroying this this very important symbol and for some people i'm sure it was a very real preservation of the universe and of the upholding of the world and their world did collapse with after that like they're those for whom um the local people for whom that was such an important um sacred monument it it their world did turn upside down um and first with you know multiple multiple instances of genocide and violence um, and tremendous violence by Charlemagne and others who were inspired if we would by him um, and copying him and I'm I'm like how what are some of the ways that we know in which their society changed what do we know a little bit because I know that to some extent there's a we don't there's a lot we don't know because we most of our records are from the conqueror <laughs> Um, but just as we, um, in other parts of history, but like, how much did this shift change their life that we, that we know? And obviously one of the biggest shifts would have been the shift to the, to the literate focus of the world. Well, a lot of people are shocked when they realize exactly how, um, violent, but also how sustained and long-term the campaigns in Saxony were, um, Charlemagne's troops considered themselves victorious in 772 when they demolished the Ermensul and took the loot. But the Saxons revolted promptly the next they revolt, year. Which tells us that they were, they were incredibly unhappy with this and they did not want this. And one of the things that they did during the revolt was they attempted to burn a church set up by the Anglo-Saxon missionary Boniface um, which had allegedly been built out of the wood from a sacred oak tree. Um, after 773's revolt, Charlemagne comes back in 775. There are campaigns and assemblies in 777, 779, 780, 782, 783, 785, 795, 796, 797, 
preferred to be mm-hmm. executed than to get baptized which you know is really amazing and just as Charlemagne himself engaged in 15 separate military campaigns the Saxons rebelled in 773 776 778 782 784 when they were aided by the Frisians another one of these oppressed people 798 and then in 809 when they were aided by the Obradites another group of people who were living in the kind of Baltic and Scandinavian area so there were seven systematic campaigns of rebellion uprising by these indigenous people who did not want to be conquered and they did not want to change their religion that was absolutely and totally clear and so what happened to them well one of the most terrifying things is that huge numbers of Saxons were killed in the military campaigns but once Charlemagne got the upper hand other things that we would recognize from the treatment of modern indigenous people happened too for example very large numbers of Saxons were forced to leave Saxony and resettled in distant parts of the Frankish Empire where they didn't speak the language and they didn't have any kinfolk and places which were completely and absolutely Christianized so they could not have had any opportunity to preserve their own traditions. And this happened in Australia when, for example, big cattle stations started being established in the central desert region of our island continent and aboriginal groups who had totally different languages and different cultures different dreaming stories different art styles were all herded into mission stations um, where they developed into something completely different because Mm -hmm. the main of individual tribal identity became impossible quite apart from the fact that they were kind of fed a diet of Christianity from morning till bedtime um and probably not their traditional food either no absolutely not and Mm -hmm. we have a situation in Australia where a lot of the illnesses that Indigenous people suffer from particularly kidney diseases and diabetes are um usually put down to the introduction of the western diet which was not appropriate Mm -hmm. and of course what happened when Charlemagne kicked out people from Saxony was he moved Frankish people in and you know we see this sort of tactic nowadays with um well say for example Han Chinese people being moved into Tibet or uh, Javanese Muslims being moved into Irian Jaya, the area that the Christian Papuans call West Papua, Mm -hmm. uh, and changing entirely the ethnic, linguistic, and social kind of fabric of, of those regions. So these are techniques that suggest to us that the, the template for conversion and for conquest and for colonization is a very ancient one. People have been doing this mm-hmm. forever. And, and that this is, you know, this is after the Roman Empire. This is part of this, of the growth of Christendom. And and Will and um, his allegiance, I almost said William the Conqueror. <laughs> um, Charlemagne's allegiance was to him to himself and his own power, but also to the Pope. Yes, like he was, like this was part of the growth of the papal authority. Um, and and a, a different, you know, the, the Christendom, like what we now think of as Christendom. This and is really important. Charlemagne's power base 
was largely backed by the papacy in Rome. Um, the Frankish people sort of in the middle 8th century, just before he became kind of king, more or less put themselves at the disposal of the papacy as kind of um, a Christian nation ready to go to war on behalf of the Pope should the Pope require it. And of course, all of these campaigns that Charlemagne engaged in and all of his um, pro-Christian activities in the year 800 on Christmas Day, he was rewarded for all of that because Pope Leo III crowned him Holy Roman Emperor. And a lot of people don't oh. realize. Oh, wow. Yeah. When the Roman Empire kind of, everyone talks about the fall of the Roman, well, it doesn't really fall. It kind of limps on and changes and all that sort of stuff. But the interesting thing is the last um, Roman Emperor in the West is deposed in 476. His name is Romulus Augustulus. Um, and he's just basically, he's not even executed. Um, the bar barbarian Germans who are in charge by then say, just put him in a boat and they say, go off to Constantinople. Perhaps you, you'll, you know, you'll find uh, sanctuary there, but we don't really need or want you anymore. And so there's been for 320 Four years, I think I've got that right. I'm not, mental arithmetic's not my great strength. There's been no emperor in the West, and Charlemagne being mm. this holy Roman emperor was kind of recognition of his immense personal power, but also of his really tight relationship with the papacy and and his support of the papacy and his advancement of Christianity by all possible means. Including the and and meanwhile, people are being displaced and forced away from their own homelands and their own cultures and their own local ecologies and the knowledge that is held therein, and and forced into a different education system and and we see at this time the growth of the abbeys, which you know I was, I was when I was thinking about the growth of the abbeys, which you know I I, I learned about many years ago, of course, as everyone who studies much of any. History learns about the growth of the abbeys, um, but just that the I was so struck by it. It just felt it felt similar to me in a different way to the growth of the missions in um, California and here in the United States, in which those were places of education, but it was usually forced education by the local indigenous people, and they were forcibly built. And I kind of wonder, like, how much similarity there was with the abbeys, and and if we were to look at, like, yeah, like what these because. The abbeys change knowledge and they change a the construction of knowledge and they change um, the ecology of how thought is developed in Europe. Yes? Absolutely. It's very important, I think, that monasteries and abbeys play a number of different functions. So if you think about the way that Roman borderlands were organized around border forts. Um, initially, of course, when monasticism develops, it starts off in Egypt and it's kind of like hermits living in the desert. And then uh, one of the hermits, Pacomius, puts together a rule suggesting that it would be sensible if they all grouped together and lived together, at least for the purposes of saying mass and eating together. 
And then monasticism takes off in a big way and different orders are founded. And by the time you get to the seventh century, you've got Benedict of Nursia in Italy producing the Benedictine rule, which becomes like the uh, biggest monastic organization. And even though we get a lot of different orders uh, being established later and breaking away from the Benedictines, the Benedictines were kind of the norm in monasticism. And so the Benedictine monastery, as understood, was a kind of economic powerhouse. It had mills and uh, it, it had um, agriculture and pastoralism, but it was also a hospital. There were herbalists and, um, you know, various other skilled um, monks who could treat illness. It was educational. Um, Children were taken into the monasteries to be educated. The difference with the sort of missions that you mention is that most of the children who were educated in the monasteries were either what were called child oblates, that is they were going to become monks and nuns when they grew up, their families had like donated them, usually out of piety or gratitude, but sometimes out of poverty and the inability to feed them. Or they were the children of aristocrats who were believed to need education in order to become rulers. And so a lot of those little boys mostly went into monastic schools and became literate and educated and also learned to live in respect and under the authority of the church. And so when they went back out into the world to govern their duchy mm -hmm. or their kingdom, they'd already got all of those like relationships sorted out. But where I'm going with this is that Monasteries came to be established by people like Charlemagne and by missionaries working in wild border territories, a little bit like the way that the border forts of the Roman Empire were. They marked the limits of civilization. And one of the things that is interesting is that even though the Roman Empire was very thoroughly urbanized, the Germanic kingdoms that grew up after Rome were mostly not like the, the Germans weren't urban people. They lived in villages and they'd been agriculturalists and pastoralists. And so the monasteries also became focuses for towns to develop. And this is particularly important in places like Ireland, which just didn't have much of an urban or a, you know, kind of um, larger style settlement. And so you'd have um, monasteries that were outside the walls of the town, but the town would have grown up next door because of the economic power, but also the availability of services that the monastery provides. So yeah, um, they play an enormous role. And then when pilgrimages start getting developed as a, a means of devotional behavior, monasteries are like the budget hotels. Mm -hmm. They're built along the pilgrim routes. So the pilgrims can sleep on the floor, on the on the the rushes and be fed, you know, a basic meal and be allowed to go to mass and all that kind of thing. And so they they fill this huge situation. They're 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 also not just um, for educating children. They're they're powerhouses of learning. People translated um, classical texts and Arabic texts after the Crusade period. Um, there were monks who were philosophers and who wrote medical manuals and political manuals. Yes. I mean, it's, it's 
I mean, is it fair to say that they are the um, early beginnings of higher education institutions today? Well, mostly if you look at the history of the West, people would draw a fairly strict line between monastic education as, say, promoted by Charlemagne and the universities as they developed, say, in Paris in the 12th century. Um, because the universities are secular, which doesn't mean that they're not dominated by religion. It, the seculum is outside. Regular clergy live under a rule, a regulus. That means they live in a monastery or an abbey. Secular clergy are like parish priests and bishops who move amongst lay people in um, general society. And therefore they are engaged with the seculum, this age. Uh, and I guess secular universities were less controlled by the church and mm -hmm. uh, sure you know. sure but yeah and that that power dynamic is really is important and in terms of like you know how things were shifting but but as I like it's there they as you know to to go back to the point that you were just making like these abbeys on the borders are holding this really, really critical, multifaceted role. And I imagine that they're shifting people's ecological knowledge, including, you know, as you were saying, they're, they're writing medical texts. So people's relationship to their bodies is being um, shaped and their relationship to their local ecological knowledge would be shaped by these institutions in ways that would have been I'm guessing very different than what had come before. I think so, yes. Though it's very hard for us to know mm, because mm -hmm. most of the ordinary people of the Middle Ages, even ordinary Christians, couldn't write. And we have so little. We have, mm -hmm. for example, sometimes agricultural charms and spells that have survived. And also there are sometimes riddles in Anglo-Saxon riddle books that seem to allude to old gods and to different sorts of practices. But um, Christianity, it, it's, it's so dominant largely because it is literate. And it's one of the reasons why some of the most interesting new material that's become available in the last, you know, half century, shall we say, has been archaeological because people do leave real material traces and amazing temple complexes have been uncovered. One thinks of Upakra in Scandinavia, which is just unbelievable. Um, and, you know, 50 years ago, people didn't know it even existed, so they couldn't talk about it. And there used to be people who'd say, oh, you know, pre-Christian pagans didn't really have temples. They didn't know how to build buildings or, you know, all they did was, you know, they had maybe a sacred grove or something. Well, we now know from archaeological remains that this is simply not the case. There are major temples that existed throughout Europe. And that means that the people must have been organized. They must have believed that the uh, building projects which honored whichever gods or, or royal dynasties or so on were actually valuable. It suggests that their society was sophisticated and, um, you know, that it had a calendrical 
pattern of gatherings at different important times of the year. But a lot of this stuff is speculative because we don't have texts that confirm it. Mm-hmm. And again, again and again and again, you know, it's the same story that we, it's a similar story. It echoes, it echoes a story that we hear um, in indigenous cultures around the world as they try to um, look back into a pre-colonial and pre-Christian uh, worldview to find what was there and and often the challenges and so you know so many times it's those <laughs> it's the anthropological record which has it um that has because that's where things were written down um and, and then at the same time there are people who are finding different ways of remembering um well thank you i know we're coming to the end of our time this has been incredibly rich occasionally eerie and um you know with i can feel some of the reverberations of history as you're describing them um, and some of the both fascinating and challenging parts of what it means to be human that are being that you are describing and have had can help to give greater voice to. Um, I feel I would I would love to hear someday much more about how you're seeing these older this 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 time period as it compare as as contemporary esoteric movements are are searching for different identities today. But I think that's a totally different conversation. Um, so I would many appreciations to you. And I'm just like, is there anything about um, for people who are wanting to continue thinking about these questions that you would point people to or um, resources that that you have found particularly helpful? Well, it all depends what people want to read about. Um, if you're interested in Anglo-Saxon spells, Karen Jolly has a terrific book about them. And it's interesting because spells and incantations, particularly agricultural ones, are places where older knowledge is preserved. Um, There are some great uh, resources regarding um, pagan religion. I mean, I've mentioned already Ken Dowden. Um, His book, European Paganism, is just fantastic. Like it, it, it's general it's a survey but it still manages to have a tremendous amount of depth it's very well informed uh, and it's very readable which I think is great Um, there are some interesting sort of survivals of things like the sacred trees and the pillar monuments into Christian culture as well and a lot of the um, work for example that's been done about Glastonbury, we'll talk about the Glastonbury thorn, which is a holy tree, which is linked to the Christian story. It's supposed to be the staff of St. Joseph of Arimathea, but it also has obvious kind of pagan connections. And around Europe, when people travel, they often discover sacred wells. Most of the wells have trees nearby, where people tie rags or write wishes. And you, you know, you see the survival of these sorts of customs as a way to kind of connect. Mm. And I think everybody will know something like that in their local area, a site, mm. whether it was sacred to indigenous people or whether it has a kind of folk religious feeling, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and really lifting up and naming how much was 
uh, incorporated into the process of the synchronism um, synchronism of Christianity, and particularly the Catholic Church, which you know just took up so many different local traditions. Um, in part because theology wasn't always, especially in early stages, was not the main issue at stake. It was it was more the political conversion or the I, I guess not quite political conversion, but the identity conversion. I think theology is interesting. It's it it's always a matter of um, great concern and very 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 fractious argument amongst people who are actually both groups say are theologically educated. But when you're looking at the conversion of a completely non-Christian population, theology often gets lost or buried or relegated to being not quite so important, just as you were saying, because there are other things at stake. Mm. Mm. It's such a different way of thinking about some of our own experiences today and some of these histories. Thank you once again, and, and much, much appreciated. It's been a pleasure to speak. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Remembering and Reenchanting podcast. If you are enjoying what you are hearing, please subscribe, share, and leave us a review. I am always happy to hear from you, dear listener. To continue finding ways to connect the disconnected and go deeper on your own journey of remembering and re-enchanting with your communities, your organizations, and your families, I invite you to check out our courses and other community offerings via the Sequoia Samanvaya website. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, though I must admit I spend much more time working with really amazing people than crafting social media. If you want to work with me one-on-one or bring me to speak at your organization or family office, you can find out more at sarahjelina.com.